What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I am Scott Lease, <clears throat> one of your two co-hosts and co-founders of the Surf and Sales Summit, the Surf and Sales Podcast, along with my good friend, Richard Harris, who has just released a brand new book called The Seller's Journey. What's up, Richard? How are you, my man? You doing okay? I'm okay. You sound tired or sick? Uh, I am not sick. Uh, I am tired. Yeah. So, and what's what's the new SL? Is that a Scott Lee skier hat? Like, do you have gear? well, my son? It's actually Salt Lake Barbecue, uh, oh. Texas, and my son went to uh, the barbecue spot with my girlfriend and saw it and was like, "Dad should get that hat," and so he got it for me. Basically, that's cool. Yeah, but if you look at it from far away, it looks like you know SL, and maybe I signed it. Yes. Like my autograph or something like that. So I'm like, oh, Scott's going to have a swag store. Yeah, I'm pulling a fast one on everybody now. You know? so, uh, yeah, we're, we are here today, Richard, with uh, a special guest, Levi Yakubov, founder of Fulfilled. So <clears throat> we're excited to talk to him, learn a little bit about his founder story and uh, dig into what Fulfilled is all about. So welcome to the show, Levi. How are you? Thanks, Scott. I am doing great. Super excited to be here. And yeah, looking forward to an interesting conversation. All right, man. Well, let's start with what is Fulfilled? What are you all up to? What are you building? Give us the lowdown. Fulfilled is a software uh, delivery software for brands, specifically in food delivery. So a little uh, backstory. Uh, we were originally a delivery service working with uh, local restaurants in my community in, in New York City and Queens. And we were targeting restaurants that needed help uh, delivering high valued orders. So not your kind of like five or $10 orders from a pizza store or some burger place. These are like catering size deliveries that, you know, are at least $300 and can be north of like one or $2,000 where it really matters how those deliveries get to the customer. And we started focusing on those orders, executing them well. So that was the value add that kind of the overall market, you know, the big players uh, in the industry were not really equipped for. And slowly but surely we scaled uh, from, you know, that local neighborhood to over 30 uh, markets in the U.S. And somewhere along the way, uh, working with, you know, industry leaders um, in the space like Sweetgreen and, and Whole Foods and Panera Bread, we discovered a new kind of um, underserved, I guess you could say, segment of the food delivery uh, uh, marketplace. And that was in the technology. And we ended up building that technology while still delivering. And we uh, are excited because we just launched our MVP and we allow brands to manage their own deliveries uh, today. And kind of, yeah, that's what we're focusing on and what do you excited mean, for the future. Yeah. What do you, when you say manage your, their own deliveries, what does that mean? So I'm a restaurant, I'm Panera. I, what does that mean? So let's say you have your own uh, list. Let's say you have your own drivers. So you can go in into our software and dispatch, oversee those drivers. Um, if they deliver any orders, you'll be able to see any proof of delivery photos. So anybody that really needs to kind of control the process of how their deliveries are done are able to do that thanks to Fulfilled's 
technology. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Now, how did you hit upon this idea? Because I don't know if you know this, Richard, but prior to this role, Levy was an orthopedic surgeon PA. Jeez. Yeah. Talk about a hard left turn, yeah. if you will. That's so how did you, how did you, what was the process for hitting on, on this idea and deciding to go all in on it? Yeah, you know, I get asked that a lot. And I guess I didn't really have a good answer. Like I had an answer that I thought was the true answer, but I did some, you know, deeper digging. And I think it starts with just, you know, my family being immigrants in the US. So they came from the former Soviet Union, Uzbekistan. And uh, mom is Russian, dad is Baharian Jewish. And I guess, you know, because of that kind of immigrant uh, backstory, finances were always a problem. So that was the first spark that made me want to always become an entrepreneur somewhere in the back of my head. Um, But I also really had a passion for soccer. So I wanted to become a professional soccer player first. And my dad said, no, kind of like, you know, stay in college, you know, finish your degree. Um, And I, I always used to get injured. So I always wanted to know how, you know, to fix those injuries. So I said, all right, I'm going to go into orthopedic sports surgery and I did that for a couple of years, but yeah, after a while, I just realized there's only so many ACLs, rotator cuffs and shoulders, hips and knees you can fix until you get bored. At least for me, it's a very noble career and it's, and it's super, you know, obviously rewarding. Um, and I learned a lot in that process, but I just wanted to start something on my own. Yeah. But so how, did you, I, how did you choose this? Like, how did you, Yeah, this is. I, I agree. Like, okay, so that was cool. But how did you go? I'm going to get into delivery. I'm going to get into food. I'm going to get into the, any of that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't jump to it. Like, I, I so just continuing the story. Like, I tried to. I quit my job. I tried to open up my own startup in telemedicine, which is treating patients virtually by phone, and that kind of failed miserably. Was not able to launch that. So I was looking for a next best ideas. I was trying things with you know, partners, myself. And one day my mom was ordering groceries on her phone and she had like a, she had a bad experience. So um, it was on, it was before the pandemic and, you know, before food delivery was popular. So I said, all right, maybe there's something there. I explored it. I did some research. I went door to door to restaurants, cafes, supermarkets, uh, even pharmacies, anybody that, you know, potentially might need deliveries. And I asked them, you know, what was your delivery? What is your delivery experience like? And a lot of them would say the same things. They'd say either, you know, it was bad. They have no options to choose from and they have to deliver on their own or they had some options, but it didn't fit their entire use case. So after that, I just said, okay, the man is there, uh, posted a job ad for drivers. And within one day I got like a hundred applicants. So I was like, ah, supply, demand, let's give this a shot. And, you know, five years later, the rest is history. That's amazing. That's really cool. And it only verifies what I've been saying. There's no such thing as a buyer's journey, just a buyer's experience. So plug for my book, yeah. The Seller's Journey. Anyway, um, I want to shift for one second and then we're going to come back to the business side of this. Scott, I want to know what's more painful. We've had people who compete with us on our podcast, right? Which yeah. we're okay with. Competitors, yeah. Competitors. And you're a Liverpool fan. And Levy's an Arsenal fan. Which is more painful, talking to an <laughs> Arsenal fan or talking to a true competitor of our business? 
Yeah. Probably talking to an Arsenal fan. Good question. Probably talking to an Arsenal fan and trying to be polite. Yeah. It's particularly (laughs) this year since, you know, the race at the top is like very tight. You guys are still on top though. So thank you. Yes. Ever so, ever so slightly. Ever so. And I'm slightly. sorry. I'm sorry about Jurgen Klopp. He's a great coach. Yeah. Well, we got to send him out hopefully in style this year before he uh, before he he retires into the into the sunset. So when you're going about your sales motion <clears throat> with fulfilled, talk to us about the process that is working right now for your team from you know, uh, <clears throat> sort of the outreach standpoint to you know, how you're, how you're pushing deals, you know, through creating urgency. What, what is that? What is the sales process and cycle like right now? And how has it changed in the last year or two? Yeah. It changed tremendously because before in the last year or two, we were selling a delivery service and we've, you know, learned how to solidify that process, you know, rebuild it, build it over again, find what works. And it was working. Uh, shout out to Sales Qualia, Monica Stewart, Leslie Vanets, who really helped, you know, pave that. But once we, you know, built our own software, now everything is kind of changing. Like, obviously, we still are targeting the same ideal customer profile, same ICP. But at the same time, we slightly expanded. We're adding different values. So everything changes. You know, we, we have to pretty much start from scratch again. And it, that's been interesting. You know, that's kind of like what we're going through it right now. Um, testing with new copy, kind of marketing material, like going back to square one, like just interviews with customers, um, making sure that before we, you know, multiply things and send out any, you know, campaigns, emails, things like that, we're actually targeting the right audience. Um, and then going into, you know, the whole sequences, uh, email, LinkedIn, outreach, phone calls, all that good stuff. What do you, um, where do you attribute sort of this entrepreneurial spirit, right? Again, you sort of, you, know, you come from this immigrant background, right? Which I interpret as you got to hustle hard, you got to work, you got to do your thing. Um, clearly, your parents want came to provide you a better opportunity than they had as as a as a younger person. What else was it? Is there? Have you always been this way? Is it the and and not in a blame perspective, but is it like, well, this is just what my parents told me and I've got to go do this this way. Like, where did it even come from? Because you made a hard pivot. Yeah, no, I, I was definitely a late bloomer. I was not always like this. Um, like I mentioned, like kind of sports where soccer was more of my like passion at that time. And maybe it was just hidden in my subconscious, seeing how my parents, you know, worked crazy jobs. Um, you know, my earlier days barely saw my dad because he was, you know, delivering pizzas during the day, then dropping my mom off to school and then, you know, going to do some other odd jobs in the nighttime. So, yeah, maybe all that just registered later. But um, I, I don't have a clear answer as to why, but I do know I, I want to give back to them. I want to, you know, make a name for the family and just make a positive impact in, in the world, you know. So yeah, just achieving something great, I guess. How do you, <clears throat> how are you thinking about going from the 
I think you said 30 markets or so that you're in right now. How do you think about going from 30 to 300? What, what are the sort of scaling obstacles in front of you right now? How, how are you thinking about those? Well, you see, I mean, with, with product, it's a completely different ball game. Um, a lot of it depends on what stage we're in with the product and how fast we can deliver on what's on the roadmap. So in my head, obviously, I want to get there, you know, tomorrow. But realistically, we have to crawl before we run, which means we have to nail it with the customers that can benefit from our features that we have today before we can think about, you know, selling this to the world. And I'm very big on providing the most amount like quality and just excellent customer service has always been our mantra when we were a delivery service. And that's not going to change, you know, as a SaaS company, we want to treat our biggest enterprise customers the same exact way we treat our smallest customers, which is making sure that we provide the highest amount of quality. So yeah, that's kind of like a broad way, I guess, to answer your question. Where do you, what was your biggest struggle? Like go back to your, you know, and I'm asking for the founders who listen or people who are thinking about this, right? Was it hard for you to make the leap? Was it hard for you to go, I'm giving up on this particular thing and I'm going to make this leap? Or did you start this sort of as the side hustle thing and sort of build it up? Like, how did you, you know, try, I'm trying to get um, to understand, you know, different perspectives around that approach. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm Everybody's different. I'm a planner. I like to plan things. I'm very meticulous when it comes to the details. And I, I like to feel like a sense of control before I take any leaps. So that for me was not the hard part. The hard part was the execution because nothing ever <laughs> works the way it's planned. Um, you know, the hard part was like, just getting the first sale, you know, going from door to door to restaurants. And then the harder part was thinking you have delivery drivers ready to start um, on Monday. And then on Sunday night, none of them are picking up their phone and you still got to make sure somebody shows up in that restaurant and delivers. So yeah, that's like, there's so many lessons. Um, what one story that particularly stands out was we were working with a, a butcher shop in, in Manhattan and uh, we were going to work with them. You know, they agreed, they, they liked the pitch and they were ready to sign up, but obviously they wanted like a demo first, a pilot. And we had uh, an agreement that, you know, they would have one, one biker start, I guess it was like a week from when we spoke. And then a couple of days before, the biker just completely, you know, disappeared. This does not answer his phone, did not, I, I guess was not interested in the work anymore. And yeah, at, at that point, time was of the essence. So I pretty much had to like stop <laughs> and ask bikers on the street if they want to work for us. Um, and, you know, thankfully uh, we did convince somebody and they did start. And uh, in New York were, City, you had to stop a biker and ask them to help you. Yeah, and a lot of them didn't speak English, so I had to use my broken Espanol skills and you know convince them why they should work for us and not the gig that they have currently. Um, and thankfully, you know, there was interest; they were looking for that kind of side income. Um, but yeah, 
that's that that was like one struggle that stood out. He took, like, he, he, he took he, recruiting to the street. Yeah, I was gonna say we'd never done that. I, I've no. certainly recruited a, a you know someone who was a who was you know in the service industry at a restaurant to come into sales. You know, uh, but I don't know about off the street like that. No. Yeah, it's it's uh it's very risky. Obviously, you know we've well improved our recruiting game since then. But you know that just kind of it's an example because sales is super hard, right? You know, just getting the client to even say yes or show any interest, um, that's hard. But then to potentially lose that sale because you don't have the supply, that that would have been a nightmare for me. So that was why I chose to not give up and get somebody to service them. All right, I got I got one more question if Scott will let me, because I know he's doing all the talking today. Um, so you're, you're clearly, you know, it's interesting just sort of getting to know you that you are a little bit of this person who likes to be controlled, you like to think things through, you like to do this. So often I see a lot of founders who are like that and they can't get out of their own way because they're looking for some level of perfection, right? what is good enough for you? How do you get past that? Or have you always been able to kind of go from ideation, this is enough, now I can execute? Because I see sometimes people like, they keep tweaking it to the nth degree. Um, yeah, that's a very good observation. I, I would say the answer is always in the field. So once the customer decides it's good enough, then that kind of gives me the green signal. But I'm a very hands-on person, as you can tell. So I, I like to test the product myself, use it myself, and definitely make recommendations. But, you know, I would get in the way if I wanted it the way I wanted, like you said. So That's because that... so how do you know when not to get in the way? Because you could, you could talk to 20 customers and they all want one thing and they're all legit. How do you, how do you coach? Well, once the customer, that? yeah, once the customer gives the green light like they they like it they're using it, it makes sense then um i obviously uh, get out of the way uh because me being in the way means adding things to the roadmap it means you can't get to you know actual production right away so that that is that, that is important <clears throat> well how do you um how do I phrase this? How do you evaluate right now what channels are working best? So anybody out there who's selling to the restaurant industry, for example, your kind of market, how are you evaluating these the different approaches? Is it phone? Is it in person? Is it video? Like what, what is working to first capture somebody's attention? So that depends on the ICP. So for instance, if somebody's ICP is enterprise brands, then it's much harder to just walk in to the front door and speak to the owner or the decision maker. Um, with those channels- You're literally walking up to the storefront in New York. Well, that's what I said. Like before we were targeting enterprise. Now with software, like we're, we're targeting kind of both. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going back to like the early days where going back to the roots. Yeah. Going back to the roots, going inside of restaurants, seeing who we can speak with. We have a lot of relationships, thankfully already with restaurants. So I'm leveraging that first before going, you know, cold outreach to restaurants, but 
yeah I, I mean with them like you it's much harder to get them to answer emails um you know phone calls probably are going to work more um and if you have the opportunity like in your community to go in person that that's always the best but obviously that takes up the most time so i i think finding a balance between the two and yeah but when, when you're targeting enterprise you have to definitely have emails in there linkedin is huge linkedin is you know it's, i don't know if it's underrated or not but it's even it's been, even in the restaurant industry yeah in the restaurant industry yeah, see, i think that would surprise people a little yes. bit yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, is it the owner that you have success with or the general manager? This is the, like, if we're talking enterprise, then then we're, you know, not, not even the owner, like the general manager. Um, the small restaurants, no, they're not on LinkedIn. So I just want to make that clear. Like, I'm talking about enterprise with, with LinkedIn. Got so, it. yeah, just finding a way to have the messaging direct short and sweet like nobody's gonna read a long email you have to respect their time and you have to respect them by showing them that okay here's you know what like a personalized kind of introduction and then here's what we do is how we help solve your pain point you know maybe add an example specifically of how you've done that in the past and then just a call to action to me i found that really worked for us uh greatly in the past and um that that's that's really good for enterprise so i got i got one more question and we want to flip it and have you ask us you know something as we always do um competition right you know you talked about creating this experience right it's about your it's about your buyer's experience and you kind of have two right you have your actual paying customer but then you have their customer right because if it goes poorly you know, to the person who receives it, they're going to let the vendor know your customer and it's going to get back to you. How do you differentiate competitively? Because so many people, I, I could see people commoditizing the delivery service that you offer, right? And so the, the question is, in your advice, when you're moving into a competitive field, how do you differentiate? Like how do you how do you not be like everybody else? Aside from the service you're providing, how, how do you stand out? It's all about relationships. So if you build a strong enough relationship with the person you're servicing and truly treat it like a partnership, then you will by default stand out. It doesn't matter who the competitor is. As long as you're able to provide them value and listen to the feedback and take ownership, when you make a mistake, that is your mistake. You own it. If the delivery is late, for instance, or if the driver didn't show up, then you own that. You talk through the plan, kind of go through the root cause analysis with your partner, in this case, the customer. And you build on that. Um, but I, I wouldn't say, you know, like I, I try not to focus too much on competitors or anything like that because you know it's, it's easy to go crazy and pull your hair out and say oh they have more resources than us blah 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 it, i focus on the customer and seeing how we can provide the most amount of value to the customer and kind of always keep them at the top um and i know it's cliche and a lot of people say that but it really is easy to get distracted 
you know, because there's so many other moving parts in the business. Um, and it's easy to just say, oh, yeah, let's let's just take the customer for granted in the back of your head. Like they're paying us. No, you have to have the attitude that they're a partner. You cannot take them for granted. They can you, you can lose them at any moment uh, because there's so much competition. And yeah, so that would be my advice. I think that's a good <clears throat> guide yeah. and light to uh, to operate by that everybody should keep in mind and, and remember. And you're right. Yeah. It, is, it is easy to get distracted from. Yeah, your attitude and approach are your competitive advantage. I think that's sort of how I interpreted that. That was really cool. Um, what what can we do for you? What question would you have for us? I would, I guess it's a similar question you asked me, but it's more like throwing it to you guys. What advice would you have to any founders, not just myself, that went from a service business now to a SaaS business in terms of gaining momentum in sales, like, just from thinking about it or any advice in general you would have. Hmm. God, you want to go? Yeah. I think in the service business, you can get caught up in sort of saying, yeah, we can do that for you and, and customizing everything. And in the SaaS business, you have to be able to say, no, you know, we're not going to do that or we can't do that or we can't do that right now or whatever, you know, because if every single request that comes in, you're like, yeah, we can do that. You end up distracting the whole entire company and the roadmap gets completely turned upside down. You build something for one customer that nobody else wants. You spend all My this product time team wouldn't be money. too happy with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that's one thing that kind of stands out straight away. Um, learning yeah, how to say no good. to some of these kind of customized requests. I've seen a lot of startups make that mistake, especially if there's a decent chunk of change attached to it. And you're like, Oh, if I build this customized thing that they're asking for, it'll be a big deal that, that almost never really works out. <laughs> so that's the first thing that came to my mind. What about you, Richard? Yeah, I think it's, it's, you're doing so many of the right things. Your, your intuition is really strong in the sense of, continually talking to your customers, right? And you've been able to, to your point, you have this relationship with a lot of them. My advice would be asking them the question you asked us, right? I would I would try to bring in a couple of these people. I, you know, I don't know how many customers you have yet or besides your board, but, you know, it might be time to have a customer advisory board, right? Where you have, you know, three or four people that you really, really trust and who really get what you're trying to do and bring them in to ask some of these questions, right? Because I think to your, and you already, you're, like I said, you're innate to listen to your customers. You have that skill, right? And it's not so much just about what, what features they want or, or whatever. It's about why did you trust us? When was the moment you trusted us? When was the moment you realized this was a big enough pain that you needed to solve it, right? And again, if you haven't done those things, that, that would be you know something for your product marketing team or now you think even you just sort of as the founder can want to hear, right? And, and build that. So I think a, at a certain point, a customer advisory board is might be a smart thing to do. Um, 
I think the key piece too, as you, you've nailed, is I've got the MVP out there. Um, so getting that feedback, which you're probably already doing a hundred times over. Um, and I, again, even I would even think, you know, asking some of these customers, why us over other things? Like, what else would you see in the marketplace? Like, you could ask them, who's calling you trying to win your business from me? Like, a, probably one of the smartest customer questions you could ask. And I don't know very many people who do it. Um, because that's how you're going to stay ahead of the game. You know, so I, th I think there's some value to that. And it sounds like you're kind of doing it. I don't know if you have it sort of formalized. That'd be my one piece of advice here. Yeah, that's great. No, thank you, guys. That is very good advice. So being careful, being more careful when you say yes, and just going back to the customer, always asking questions and yeah, letting think, that be the guiding light. Yeah, I think the other thing too that that I notice is, particularly as a founder, and you said you know you you like to control things and stuff. Clearly, you come from a very different background than most, and you have this ability somewhere along the way you figured out, or maybe if you have a co-founder or something that's letting you find people that you can trust, right? Who's going to code it, who's going to build it, who's going to do it. And let you, you seem to have this ability to know what you want, but let them, it sounds like you know how to let them go do it without being the hands-on founder who's got to get deep in the code that I see a lot. Um, so yeah. I, I don't, I, that's an assumption on my part that you have that, um, you know, yeah. the other parts where you, maybe it's harder for you to give up the sales part, or maybe it's harder for you to give up the marketing and the mess. I don't know, but I would double down on that. Trusting your people to do what you hired them to do. Um, you know, and again, you said, let people make the mistakes. You'll own your mistakes. Well, I'll let them make a mistake too. Like you'll, you'll guide them. There's, you know, you, you, you'll figure it out. So that would be my other yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to quickly say like all th that, what you just mentioned, like trusting people and letting them do their jobs, like that came after being burned like two or three times thinking that I had the right person. Like that wasn't natural like that. You, you'll learn that with experience. And yeah. yes, you know, now thankfully it's, it's at that point where like, okay, you know, they're doing so I'm gonna, job. I'm going to yeah. flip it back to one more question for you based on that topic. What did you learn from like, when did you, what is it you've kind of figured out that, oh, now I know what to look for when I'm hiring somebody? Because I think that's a question all founders have, right? And that yeah. trust. And was it more about finding the right person or did you have the right people, but you couldn't let go? Yeah, I, I think as a founder, before you hire somebody, you should know what good looks like. Whether it means you do it yourself not to the point where you get a PhD in that thing, whether it be sales or product, but if it's sales, like at least get three or four or five paying customers and then, you know, hire somebody so you can see what good looks like and then let them surprise you. Um, my philosophy is if somebody can do at least my job, at least 80% as good as me, then great. You know, no, no more micromanagement. I'm very big on the trust battery. Um, approach. I think it was originally coined by Shopify CEO. I heard it from Sweetgreen CEO where, you know, every person starts off with their trust battery at 50%. And, you know, as they navigate through tasks and they achieve like whatever desired result KPIs, you know, then the trust battery charges up and you don't have to ever kind of like micromanage them. You just kind of check in, whatever. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, sometimes like if you're not a technical founder, like I wasn't, you know, <laughs> either you learn how to code or you're going to have to take the risk of hiring the wrong developers, hiring the wrong product team and not, you know, getting it right. And until you find that one person or you have, you know, give equity and, and get a co-founder that does guide you and build you that product that is what the customers need. That's really cool. So we got to, we got to wrap it up here. Um, Scott, where's my trust battery with you right now? Am I, am I at 50% <laughs> threshold at least? Am I? Let's <laughs> get a hundred percent trust battery in the trust. Is, yeah. Uh, I like that one though. I like that trust battery thing. That's cool. I'm glad I, <laughs> glad I answered the question. So uh, thank you so much for, for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, folks, Surf and Sales is coming up in November. Still some slots left. Yes, we actually do sell early. Um, so feel free to check it out at surfandsales.com. And of course, you can buy my book, The Seller's Journey, anywhere you can find online stuff. So, you know, there you go. Scott's going to have a table outside his house and sell them on the corner with some <laughs> cookies or something. So. All right, Levy. Thanks for being on the show, man. Wish you the best with Fulfilled. And uh, everybody, we will see you next time on the Surf and Sales podcast. Bye, Thank everybody. you, guys. Appreciate it.